one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 421 for the week of Monday, June 25th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer, and good evening, world. How y'all doing? I think we're doing okay here. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I'm doing better than okay. I'm doing great and it's good to be here. Awesome, and we're looking forward to what you have lined up for us later this show, because we are going to do exactly as we did last week, as this is part two of last week. Each have a space story, Gene and I, related to something that occurred this past week, and then Mark is going to enlighten us with some more clips, and we're not going to spoil who he has. We'll let Mark introduce those a little bit later. I thought I was just bringing Coke, and one of you guys had the pizza. You mean I'm supposed to bring (laughs) recording stuff? (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. Wait. Oh, that's right. This is Talking Space. <laughs> no, the, okay. this is the Talking Space recording, not the party that's tomorrow. Ah, okay. I'm with you. Okay. Now that we're all hungry, let's get things started here. Our first story is, once again, about the People's Republic of China, who their Shenzhou 9 capsule, which launched on June 16th, has completed another milestone. This milestone is that their spacecraft undocked and redocked once again with the Tiangong-1 module. Except the difference is, the first docking, which was two days after launch, was an automated docking. This docking was manual, and that was successfully completed just before 1 p.m. on Sunday, June 24th. So China is really moving quickly, and at this rate, their eventual goal will be to create a new space station of their own, and then eventually lunar landings. This is moving very quickly. Yeah, uh, I think I said this a little bit uh, last week, though. I think they we've kind of we've kind of laid the groundwork for them in a way, ourselves and uh, and the Russians. So in, in some sense, I think they're standing on the shoulders of giants and in in that respect, meaning they're standing on our shoulders right now because we've kind of just sort of plowed the road for them. We, we did all the all the heavy lifting and they're basically being the beneficiaries of that heavy lifting. I'm not going to go ahead and minimize, though, what they've done. This is some pretty good stuff. Um, and it's always good to see another player out there on the field in, uh, in space. But, um, you know, again, I'm not going to belittle what they did, but this is, they're already in their, but they're already in our Gemini program. There's been some speculation though. Um, I believe this was from, uh, NPR I'm looking at, um, 
from, uh, oh, what's the date here? Uh, June 22nd, uh, Ira Flatow in his uh, Science Friday program. We're talking about, you know, are, are we looking at another space race or, or anything like that? Um, or or technolo- is there really a, some sort of technology gap, you know, between China and the U.S. here and so on? Um, or are they really, really trying to minimize that technology gap? I don't know. Uh, I'll I'll put a question to every to you guys. Do you think this is going to spur off a new space race? I don't know if it will, but I sure hope so. And that that may seem like a bizarre thing to say, hoping for another space race. But think about the last space race that we had. How far we progressed. I mean, we were racing against the Soviet Union from the moment they put up Sputnik, and from the moment they put up Sputnik, twelve years later, we were on the moon. That was all based off of the fear of being surpassed by the USSR. I think we need that same spark. I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, but we've lost that desire because we have no reason. We have no competition. All of this now is just the need to explore. And the problem is, as great as the need to explore is, the people on the floor of the U.S. government don't see that as a reason to fund. If it was that there was a possible threat from China, you see how fast the funding suddenly gets transferred to NASA to beat them back to the moon and further. So I hope it does, but I'm not holding my breath. I sort of doubt that we'll see a space race in that classic sense of the 60s and 70s. Um, I think that it will give the proponents of our nation space program on when they get to where they're talking to the other polit- to the politicians on Capitol Hill it'll give them a few minutes more spin and some emphasis that they don't necessarily have otherwise because there's so much cooperative effort in our part of the space program with the Russians and Japanese Europeans Canadians US that um, having somebody that everybody else is sort of watching it could be an advantage, but I don't think it'll be an outright space race. And here's a question that I want to throw in. I was about to, to add it on top, but I, I didn't really have it formed in my mind too well. I wonder if we'll see China's progress in space continue at a continuous rate of advance or if they'll be starting and stopping and starting and stopping. I wonder what uh, what you think, how they'll manage it. Wow, good question, Mark. Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. If they're going to you know, go ahead and, and try to, to build up their uh, a possible space station the way you know, our international partners have with the International Space Station, um, who knows? And if they may actually, at some point in time, be a part of that consortium, I don't know. That would mean some political hurdles, some very big political hurdles, at least here in the United States, would have to be overcome. But do I think they're gonna they're gonna just you know you know have a you know all of a sudden this this great you know advance and then have just trickle off and then have another great advance and trickle off? It's a good question. They don't show any indications of that. They they seem to have a have a goal in mind, although we don't know what it is. Uh, we'll just have to uh, to just watch and wait. They're very, very close to the vest. As you know, this is a military program. It is not 
you know, the civilian program that, that NASA is or, or ESA or JAXA or, or uh, even, uh, even the Russian uh, uh, space agency is. Uh, so they don't have to let us in on what they're doing. I guess it all really depends on if, you know, and again, um, you know, the old government funding question comes around too, if they're going to continue to fund a robust program or not, even if it is just for propaganda purposes or if they're just trying to show that their technology is just as good as the rest, the rest of the spacefaring world. I don't know. I do know that uh, Dr. Buzz Aldrin was fond of saying, and he mentioned this at uh, the International Space Development Conference in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago, about going, you know, a lot of, a lot of people wanting to go back to the moon. And Buzz is saying, you know, if we go back to the moon, you know, what we're going to find, we're going to find Chinese. Um, so, you know, we should, we should go to, and his whole goal is, you know, okay, fine, you know, let's go to Mars, the heck with the moon. And, um, I think that what Buzz is trying to do is just trying to, you know, smack people around a little bit and say, you know, don't be so myopic, think big, you know, it, you know, going to the moon. Okay. We, we know we could, we, we know we could do that. I've been there and that, that, that's Buzz saying that, um, why not? shoot for something greater and i think that's what buzz is trying to advocate all right then so we will keep an eye on china's activities and they are supposed to land within 10 days of the start of their mission so we'll keep you up to date on that when we come back with regular news shows in two weeks all right now on to story number two of round number one around the table that goes to you gene what do you have for us today yeah, there was a. This is sort of a, a twofold thing. One, there was an announcement uh, last week about the space launch system or the SLS. Uh, the core stage, which is that that middle stage, if, if anybody you know could could visualize the spacecraft in their in their head, were um, you know flanking two uh, two uh, five segment shuttle shuttle rocket boosters on either end. It kind of looks like. Uh, an overgrown version of the uh, shuttle external tank, and in essence, that's what it is. But um, they are saying that this core stage moved from, you know, a concept area to a design area. Folks met at uh, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville between uh, NASA and, and Boeing officials, and they basically said, okay, we figured out the parts we need to make this thing. Let's go ahead and, and finally blueprint it. To quote a uh, NASA official, Tony Lavoy here, uh, quote, this meeting validates our design requirements for the core stage of the nation's heavy lift rocket and its first major checkpoint from our team. Getting to this point took a lot of hard work, and I'm proud of the collaboration between NASA and our partners at Boeing. Now that we have completed this review, we go from requirements to real blueprints. We're right on track to deliver the core stage for the SLS program. Uh, just to give people perspective and i'm looking at a article from the nasa website here this was dated uh 621 the core stage is essentially as i said the heart of the the entire vehicle it's going to stand more than about 200 feet with a diameter of about 27.5 feet or 8.4 meters essentially what the announcement says okay we know the parts we need to build this thing, let's blueprint it, and you know this is going to be what we're going to use going forward to build this thing. So, I guess it, you know it, it's a key key announcement in, in the SLS's development. 
Um, another article dated on Friday, June 22nd, however, said that, uh, and then I'm looking at, um, uh, and this is from Space News, uh, again, dated June 22nd, uh, essentially saying that the Orion high-altitude abort tests is going to go ahead and face a budget delay. Now, what that they're what they're trying to do is essentially keep have Orion keep pace with SLS development. Orion seems to be accelerating a lot faster than the SLS is, and this abort test is essentially the abort test for the launch escape system. To quote the article, Joe Ortiz, uh, NASA's uh, lead systems engineer for for the Orion launch abort system, uh, told. Uh, basically told uh, in the article, told Space News uh, in an email that he may have to move this test to fiscal year 2018 as part of a budget proposal that's still being worked out right now. Uh, essentially, they're talking about, they're, NASA's talking about trimming Orion's budget back to uh, a billion even from a, uh, $1.2 billion for uh, fiscal year 2013. And again, this is just to go ahead and keep pace with the SLS. They're basically trying to put the brakes on Orion because they want them to be both ready around the same time because Orion eventually is going to be sitting on top of SLS. The article does not say anything about um, uh, the impact to the 2014 test, although I believe on July 2nd, that boilerplate vehicle that everybody's kind of sort of seen is going to arrive at at, uh, at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, and that is going to be the vehicle that's going to be used for the, uh, the 2014 uh, reentry test. So um, some some interesting news out of the Orion camp and out of the SLS camp. And again, this is the, this is the, uh, the uh, vehicle exploration s- set that we're going to be using to go off and explore, you know, perhaps an asteroid, perhaps going back to the moon, perhaps this being the heart of possibly going from Mars. So what's going to happen with these two vehicles? Stay tuned. Um, I still say that uh, because these two vehicles are no real purpose has been really, really rubber stamped on them. Basically, this is going to be the the ship we're going to go to Mars with. Boom. Or this, we're going back to the moon with these things. Uh, because these things do not have a rubber stamp on them, uh, I think they're going to be big budget targets um, in upcoming years. So I don't know. We'll just have to keep our fingers crossed and hope hope the budget stays intact and uh, these two vehicles go off and do what they're supposed to do and or, or at least perform the way they're supposed to perform so we could finally give them a, a reason to be. Sounds like I'm against these two ships. I'm not, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, th- I think but- it's more of that we're not against the ships. We're just against the bureaucracy behind them. Yeah, that's that Sawyer. Thank you. That's a that's a very elegant way of putting it. That's exactly right. I think 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 we've got to get off our, you know, posteriors here and finally say, you know. What are we going to do with these things? We're going to develop this tremendous capacity, this beautiful capability in these machines. What do we want to do with them? 
and we have to define that goal. And I know NASA currently is a little resistant to, you know, goal-driven programs, but it, to me, in my eyes, that's the only thing we seem to respond to. And Kennedy said, we're going to the moon in eight years. Okay, fine. What are we going to do with these things? Are we going to go to Mars? Are we going to explore an asteroid? Are we going to um, use this as, you know, a way of getting back to the moon, you know, you know with apologies to uh, Dr. Aldrin? Um, what are we going to be doing with them? And I think that's what we need to do. We need to define what we're going to do with these great tools that we're, that we're building. Well, it's obvious that one of the things that uh, the space effort of the world spacefaring communities needs is some direction. Which way to pursue it? Do we pursue it for business reasons, for science reasons, for research? Do we use the science and research to move us further down the road of flags and footprints? Do we stick with science? How do you sell it? Everything's expensive. I think it's going to take some time and probably quite a few uh, false starts along the way, which this may be one. I don't know. I think this almost almost goes back to what I was saying in the last story with, you know, if there was a reason to pursue this on a deadline, then this thing would have be already in test flights. You know, Ares 1X would have already, you know, continued onward to whatever we have now. However, at this point, there is no honest rush. It's just, okay, we got this vehicle. We were told to do something. We're doing it. Just not in a timely fashion. So 2016 became 2017, which is now 2018. And I honestly wouldn't expect to see this fly before China has a space station up, which is scheduled for 2020. It's a bold statement, but at this rate, I'm not expecting anything. 2020, which, by the way, coincides with some of the published splash dates for ISS. Although the, I heard that there were talks of possibly extending that, but yes. Yeah, I I know there there's some talks of possibly extending it out to 2028, but um, you know, just saying 2020 is the, the the splash date that a lot of the the ISS folks are are kind of sort of agreeing to at this point. But that again may change, especially if China I think lost its own. That's the current goal. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on the SLS and all the systems that go along with it, and keep you up to date. As we learn more, if anything. <laughs> yeah, good way of putting it, Sawyer. All right, now comes to the part of the show that I think everybody, after last week's clips, is looking forward to this week. And this is the continuation of Mark Discovers Discovery, when Mark went down to the Kennedy Space Center to cover the events of the departure of Space Shuttle Discovery. And Mark has some absolutely amazing interviews from i think the people that a lot of people associate with when they hear about space people so let's hand it over to you mark and take it away can't wait for this gotta ask this question first are you ready and by are you ready i mean are you ready for some more interviews from april of 2012 i hope you don't get tired of me saying it because every time i think about it it brings a smile to my face but more of the April 2012 Discovery Departure events that NASA held for the media with Space Shuttle Discovery's final departure from Kennedy Space Center. Well, as you've heard before, I was there, and one thing that's hard to uh, really describe is how much that time I was in a, a state of P 
pinch me am I dreaming? I hope I'm not dreaming. I hope I'm awake and this is really happening. Because the opportunities to talk to the engineers, to the technicians, to the managers, to the astronauts was just phenomenal. It was such an incredible time. And so I've got some more good stuff to share with you tonight. Got three astronauts. And let me give you a little hint. If you really want to be impressed, way beyond just the few minutes that uh, that I got to talk with them at the shuttle landing facility, if you really want to be impressed, go to your favorite browser and in the search box type in NASA space bio space and then the astronauts names that we've been talking to. In the case of who we're talking to tonight, it'll be Steve Bowen, Eric Bow, and Nicole Stott. And of course you recall last week I used the uh, interview that I had with Michael Barrett and you wonder well what happened to the rest of the STS-133 crew? Well I tell you we had limited time. These interviews were recorded on April 16th. It was the day before Discovery left Kennedy Space Center on the SCA. They were, uh, like I said, a limited time. There was a lot of press, and they were lined up in some cases several deep around these people as we got started, and I just had to catch who I can for as much time as I could. The astronauts I missed was Steve Lindsay, the commander, and Alvin Drew. Sorry about that. Maybe we'll get a chance some other time. But uh, I hope you enjoy the folks that I did get to talk with. And so here we go. Without further ado, we'll be talking with Eric Bowe. I'm with Eric Bowe, STS-133 crew member. And what I'm curious about, I uh, read a report that talked about the need for the T-38 mm-hmm. astronaut training. That's right. Uh, tell me anything that, that you know about that. Uh, how's, it, how's it going? Has the T-38 got a long-term future with NASA, do you think? I, I think it does. Uh, the T-38 is really a uh, great machine for training astronauts to get ready in space. You know, for me as a pilot, I, obviously my background is as a, as a test pilot flying jets, but a lot of our crew members have never flown on in any type of uh, machine that's a, f- a very technical machine. And the nice thing about the T-38 is it's a, a very high-performance jet for, so for pilots like myself. It's a good chance to maintain our skills. And for those, you know, for the office, and a, and a good two-thirds of the office has never flown in a high-performance uh, vehicle of any kind, and it's a good chance to kind of step up because obviously from the T-38 to go into a rocket ship is a, is a whole other level, but it's a chance to practice wearing equipment because you're wearing a helmet and a mask. You're working with oxygen systems. You have to talk on the radios. And we integrate the crews. So, you know, as a pilot, I, I, could, I could run all the systems and do those things. But we actually split the roles and we take turns at who's flying, who's actually talking on the radio. And it's a good way because you're not sitting next to each other. You're actually talking between the seats, between each other. So you have, there are things that you think everyone understands. You say words like it and this and I'm pointing at this. And you realize that the other person doesn't always pick up on it because they can't see you. So you start learning that, hey, when I talk about things, I have to be a little more descriptive and more accurate. And when you're in a real machine as opposed to a simulator, there's obviously the possibility that things don't go as well. You know, you have emergencies and those kind of things. So it's when, it, when you're really in the hot seat, so to speak, when you actually have to make a machine work and get it from point A to point B, and you got to work with challenges of problems with the vehicle or the weather or, or just communicating with uh, controllers on the ground. There's these challenges, and, and this is a great opportunity. And a lot of the skills that you learn from the T-38 apply directly into space. You know, talking on a radio, working real-time issues that you got to solve. You know, even with the space you had to work weather issues as you come back in for landing. So there's all kinds of things that are very uh, comparable. And so it's a great machine to uh, uh, help out astronauts in, in our training uh, core. 
flew uh, from Johnson to here, I guess, in one of the aircraft behind us? We did. Who was uh, in back seat with you? I flew with Steve Bone. And Steve is not a pilot? He's not. He's a, he's a submariner. Oh, now that's got to be unique. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, and we, we, you know, with his experience is really good for a lot of things that we're doing on space station. Having his background, uh, you know, again, it's an opportunity to take people that have uh, very different backgrounds and put them together in a in a, a machine that uh, does, you know, get you ready for going into space. Just curious, with different people that have, have come in the, the astronaut corps since you started, uh, do you ever have any of the moments where somebody says, well, when I was back in such and such, we did things this way? Yes, and that's actually one of the, the best things that we have of the astronaut corps is by having all these different backgrounds. It's one of the things, that, you know, one, it's very enjoyable to talk to people with very different backgrounds, but two, it gives you a fresh look at something because a lot of times a different group that goes, hey, and it worked for them, it's a great way to bring things in. So to me, it's one of the big strengths of the astronaut corps. Is, is having people from a lot of different backgrounds because someone will sit there and say, hey, I, I remember doing it this way, and you go, that's genius. That's a great way of doing that, and then you put it in and you, and you make something. So I, I highly recommend bringing in people with a lot of different backgrounds when you try to solve a problem. And there's that kind of flexibility because people tend to think of NASA and all the procedures and the checklists, and, of course, checklists right. are regimented, right. but there's that kind of flexibility to bring in new ideas. Oh, absolutely. Wow. And that, to me, that's one of the most important things, of, of uh, especially when you're doing something in space. Yeah, every flight we flew on the space shuttle that we're out here was a completely different mission. I mean, we did a lot of the same type of things, but we had different objectives. We had we were doing different approaches and arrivals, and you know, everything was different. And that's you know, again, where uh, having uh, having that flexibility and people with different backgrounds is very, very, very helpful. How far along when you get somebody in the aircraft for the first time riding with you? Uh, how far along are they in their time as a in the astronaut corps? Well, we try to get them in fairly. I mean, they, they've done some initial training and, and those kind of things, but it, it, we, you know, within the first year we have them uh, flying. But you know, they got to go through the uh, survival training and they have uh, seat training and you know, different types of training they have to get ready to get. And then obviously they're getting started in their astronaut training as well. And then we start integrating the uh, flight training and and so we have a checkout program to get them up to speed before they actually we start flying as you know astronaut crews. And once they are through that checkout program, then we. And we continue to use it on a, on a daily basis. Every time we get in that airplane, we're thinking about, you know, what training are we going to get out of, the, out of, out of it to, to make us better, uh, not only aviators, but better, you know, ultimately astronauts. And that's really what the T-38 is for us, is a way to, to get, get us ready for that space flight. Talking about training uh, and somebody that's just starting, how, how long does it take to go from being your, your first day as an astronaut candidate <laughs> through the point where you've completed that initial training and, and go on to more advanced? It usually, you know, the astronaut training uh, course is usually about two years long uh, to, to get that initial training. And, you know, it varies based on classes and, and how, many, how, you know, the, the different years. But it's usually about two years or so. And then you kind of get ready for your, uh, you work in the office, and then, you know, you're waiting for that day when you get picked to actually go into an assigned flow, but you have other training even after you finish your, you have advanced uh, robotic skills that you work on, we have uh, advanced uh, EVA working work on our spacewalking stuff, we have a neutral buoyancy lab, a big pool that we practice in getting ready for spacewalks, and you know it kind of depends, you know, before we had shuttle simulators that were continually maintaining training and, and advancing with advanced systems and things, and, and when our new, new space vehicles come along, it'll be the same way you know, we're thinking about that, with that new vehicles are going to be in the next few years, we're going to have crews that are going to have to go train to fly on those vehicles and so you know simulators and and uh, different training devices to get ready for those flights
with the, you know, with the different uh, commercial companies that are developing their own capsules and, and different spacecraft. Right. Uh, is NASA? Uh, are they consulting with NASA? Does NASA send people like you and other astronauts out out to industry? To oh, absolutely, absolutely. We're talking to a lot of these different countries. NASA's given seed money to a lot of these different companies, and then those companies come back and ask us questions, and we ask them questions. You know, so it's kind of a a, a big effort to, to to figure out the way into space and and. To me, it's a lot like aviation. You know, aviation started out as kind of a government it, a program, and then then commercial uh, companies came in and really got aviation going. And I kind of see spaceflight as the same way. We, we, you know, we get started as a government thing, and now now commercial companies are going to do it. And the government will continue to be involved, thinking about the future and thinking about uh, going uh, going beyond. But to me, this is an exciting time of of space travel. Is uh, right here because uh, I, I was dreaming about space travel I think space travel is going to become a lot like flying in an airplane in the future you know in the not too distant future people will get on spaceships and not think as much about it kind of like people get on airplanes right now and don't think a whole lot about all the technology that's evolved in getting from point A to point B remember to fasten their seatbelt. Exactly. And, fig- and why, why, why am I late? But when you look out the window and you go, every time I get in an airplane, I sit there and go, it's amazing to me that you can take, you can get, you know, a thing with wings into the air and that it flies and it turns and does all, you know, the complexity of the air structure, the radios that we have to talk to people, the navigation aids, you know, the global positioning system that have satellites to locate our position on the planet. We have nav aids on, you know, you start think about all those things, figuring out how the weather works, pictures of satellites, you know, to look at the ground, all these things that are totally involved, but they just become kind of mundane, just like computers, you know, it really, it hasn't really been that long that we've had computers, but now everyone, just about everyone here probably has a computer on, on them that they're physically carrying, and uh, when you think about that, you, you, to a certain extent, kind of take that for granted. What are you doing nowadays as an astronaut? What's what's your job like? What kind of tasks are you looking to do day to day? You know, mo- most people are doing things as an astronaut, maintaining their tr- training currency because we're still flying astronauts in space. Where uh, we have a launch coming up here in uh, Kazakhstan, we're on a Russian Soyuz, and then we have a. Uh, as one of my jobs, I actually go out and, and see some of these different commercial companies, and we have uh, forums and we discuss things and uh, look at their progress of, of how how what what they're designing for new space vehicles. Uh, we we uh, so a lot of practice on robotic arms, you know, for the space station with our crews that are on board. We also have uh, practice in the NBL Neutral Buoyancy Lab where we're doing uh, spacewalking. So a, lot, a multitude of things that we're doing, and, and obviously uh, as an international space station, uh, uh, language is a, is a big part of that as well. Interesting. Thank you for your time. You're quite welcome. It's good to meet you. Thank you. Next up, I'm talking with Steve Bowen. If you remember, Tim Coper was the original crew member on STS-133 that had an injury that unfortunately took him out of the running for that flight, and at the last minute, Steve Bowen stepped in and took his place. That's pretty rare, but they had missions they had to fly, they had a deadline for the end of the shuttle program, and I think NASA did an excellent job in having the people on hand that could step in and fill the bill. So here we go, Steve Bowen. As the uh, latecomer to 133's crew, I'm curious, what did it feel like to, that day you found out you were one of the luckiest astronauts in the Corps? Uh, a little bit odd, uh, um, only because, I mean, Tim's such a great friend, and I really hope that while I was training that he'd be able to recover and, and pick back up and he'd be launching on uh, 133. Um, I also felt I was way, way behind when uh, my name came up. I said, oh, no, now, now I really have to uh, pick up and get paying attention. 
I'd kind of been tracking it in my job, but how I usually tell school children this story as I make the point that when you take a test, a final exam, you know, we always joke about brain dumping all that information. Well, thankfully, I hadn't brain dumped all the information I had learned on my previous flights, so I was able to step right in and a lot of the uh, repetitive stuff, so I really got the chance to focus on the things that were different for this flight and for those EVAs. It seems to me it's a great thing you were there with the experience you had. It, it enabled you to make the transition, and you had uh, how many spacewalks on your uh, on your flight with 133? Two, a uh, total of seven at that point, and uh, there were you know there were a number of people in the astronaut office that I felt really could have just stepped in there and done a fantastic job and. How they ended up with my name, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I kind of hoped it wasn't going to be me because, you know, when they make a decision like that, you don't get a chance to second guess if they pick you. <laughs> what, what was it like for Tim, uh, of course, at the point where he found out he wasn't going to fly? And then since then, how's things been going for him? Uh, he's still in the core? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was actually in the NBL last week with Eric Bo uh, doing some training, which is uh, pretty good seeing back in the water. Uh, we'll see how things progress from there, but hey, that's a, that's a big step. You know, it it's got to be heartbreaking to lose a position like that. I, I can't imagine. It's, it's just would have been... Any, any joking between the two of you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Pretty much constant, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, I think other people make more of a, a bigger deal of it than, than we do. I mean, it's, it's, you know, as, it's our job. We're professional astronauts, and uh, that, these things happen, and you've got to be able to step in there or, or move on from, from those uh, incidents. And, uh, Any thoughts about the numbers of astronauts with the change from shuttle and ISS assembly to... Well, actually, it's an interesting question because people make the assumption that, you know, if you're flying on to the ISS, you're flying five to six astronauts, U.S. astronauts a year. Not a whole lot, you would think, but when the training pipeline is two and a half years long and you can't fly somebody, you actually put them back into training for at least a year after they land. You're looking at a five-year training flight, and you do the numbers, and we're right at around 55, which uh, by the last study was about our absolute minimum. So we're looking forward to getting a new class in here, and we, we need them. It'll be, uh, uh, we'll be stepping people right into training, probably right into assignment, right after they finish their initial training, which we have done already with this, uh, the last class. Some of those guys have already been assigned. I think I read that same study, and it was a surprise to find out uh, how long the time frame is, the amount of time you have to spend out of the country, the amount of travel involved. It's a big commitment. And plus, when you get down to it, when you're here on the ground, it's still a job. You've got to have time for life. Yeah, well, it, it's a big commitment, big commitment for the families, and uh, I think people understand that now, at least within our office, how much that is. And there's a, it's a big transition, a big change from how we flew shuttles to how we're flying station, uh, whether it be EVA, robotics, how we do science, because if you're on the space station for six months, it could be a year, a year and a half since you had that last set of training on what you were doing on space stations. So we're really looking hard at how we're doing our training, if there's more we can do on orbit, if there's more efficient ways to use our time. Because you really want to get the science out on station. And, uh, you know, the only way to do that is to be more efficient going into it. Good, I get you stumped for a question. Outstanding. And it's your job to ask questions. I just have to make a answer. <laughs> Oh, no, you're doing great. Uh, any, uh, uh, I lost the question for a minute, but I'm back. Ah, uh, shucks. Uh, any talk amongst uh, the current astronaut corps or, or maybe folks that have retired 
with the I, you know the whole upcoming commercial space and commercial crew. Yeah. Any talk amongst people as to well, gee, maybe someday I'd like to do this or do that? Or I think everybody's excited. I, I think that everybody's looking forward to the possibility of having another vehicle. We just don't happen to know what that vehicle is going to be, and commercial crews seems to be uh, moving along nicely so far. You know, as long as the funding stays there, we'll hopefully get our own vehicle to launch from somewhere around here in the next few years and uh, a lot of great possibilities arise when we can uh, potentially go from a crew of you know three USOS maybe up to four USOS the payback we'll get out of that is enormous it'd be fantastic so I think we're all kind of excited in a lot of ways in the meantime I'm learning my Russian and studying up my robotics to get better at that and uh, continuing EVA training. <laughs> so you're, you're in the flow for maybe a trip up to the ISS Vesoyus? I think my Russian has to get a lot better before they'll assign me, you know. Uh, is, is English, of course, your primary language? If you... Well, I grew up in Boston. I guess that's a questionable that's a, thing. That's a second know. language, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this is your first uh, second language you're, you're learning? Yes, yes it is. It's tough. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, I, I studied for uh, about five, six years before my first assignment on uh, 126, and I was getting prof- relatively proficient, but then you lose it, you know, it's been, it was about three and a half, four years in between really focusing on it, so you lose a lot when you don't use it, and I definitely wasn't using it while I was in training for shuttle flights. How long have you been an astronaut? Twelve years. How much, uh, how much change have you seen from when you were first accepted as a candidate to, to yeah. today. Well, it's interesting. If you talk to Al and Nicole and Eric, we're all in the same, and Mike, too, we're all in the same class. And we came in in 2000 when we were at the, probably the peak number of astronauts. And uh, at the time, you know, there was a lot of questioning as to whether, you know, that was too many. But in reality, for the last two years of flying space shuttles, we had every single astronaut had flown in space, which had never happened before. You know, when I was assigned to 132, that was the first crew in about 10 years with no rookies on it, and we, that's because every single astronaut had flown in space, and that was amazing, you know, when you think about it. So, uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. Obviously, it went from 130, 140 astronauts down to 55. Uh, it's, it's, that's been dramatic. Uh, it's, it's surprising we can still cover as much as we do, and, uh, you know, we're meeting the assignments which are given to us, which is really good. Outstanding. Thank you very much. No problem. You know, that one bit there where I lost my train of thought with Steve Bowen, I left that in because I wanted to give you some indication of occasionally how easy it was to be distracted and just get absorbed with what you were hearing, what the folks were talking about. And occasionally I did lose my train of thought. That one was pretty obvious, so I hope you enjoy that one. Next up is Nicole Stott. I didn't get to talk to her for very long. This was towards the end of the time that they had allotted for us out there at the shuttle landing facility to talk to the astronauts. And by the way, this was just before, I've mentioned this before, but uh, this was just before they pretty much said, that's it, press leaves and the ramp and the aircraft and the shuttle now get to spend the afternoon with the employees that made it all happen. And so shortly after this interview, we left and... Discovery and the SCA were used for a magnificent backdrop for a lot of employees that had worked out there at Kennedy Space Center over the years and had some special photos taken with their co-workers and friends with that wonderful machine in the background. 
I've mentioned taking a look on your search engine for NASA, bio, in this case, why don't you type in Nicole Stott, and I'm not going to read her bio, but I'm going to throw some acronyms at you that I think will maybe uh, give you some indication of how interesting these astronauts and other employees are. How about STA, KSC, NEMO, Capcom, ISS, this is a little bit longer, first HTV track and capture. Well, anyway, take a look. And in the meantime, here's a short talk that I had with Nicole Stott. Any memories from KSC? <laughs> I don't know. You know, to me, when I think about KSC and all the people, it's always good. You know, that's that. I think that's that's what comes to mind the most is that it's always been a very, you know, um, positive community, and I've appreciated that. I think for the most part, you know, the media in general has been has been kind, and uh, you know, I hope that continues. I'm curious, uh, what was day one with NASA, your first day as an employee? What was it like, and what were you, uh, what were you headed into on that day? <laughs> well, I, when I, day one here, I was hired to work in the orbiter processing facility with the team that um, kind of, you know, that now that works the ops desk in there, you know, the people that as you come in and, you know, just kind of a, a young kid coming in and working, working with those guys to make sure the schedule was going right and, and all that stuff. But, you know, on the first day, I think, um, you know, even knowing I was going to be doing all that, it was like the thing that, that I was waiting for the most was going into that facility and, and seeing the vehicle for the first time. Because, you know, you'd watch it on TV or growing up coming out and, um, you know, watching launches from a distance. But to be, like, right up next to it was... I mean, I, I have this vivid memory of looking up. I don't know if you've ever done this in the OPF, walk in on the floor and then look up and the tile's all above you. And that, that's what I remember of my first uh, sighting day, of uh, day one. <laughs> day one. <laughs> Black gotta, tiles. <laughs> Got to tell you, the first time I was in OPF 2, I think and saw Discovery, the distraction. Discovery was a distraction, but getting to talk to the workers there was uh, you, you kind of forgot while you were there talking. You yeah. where you actually were and what yeah. the what the ship okay. was yeah. that was uh, yeah. above you. Well, we had a, a very similar thing, uh, and, and I, that happens a lot, I think. And uh, when we were here, when they were getting ready to roll Discovery out to um, the VAB um, for 133, and it was like a skeleton crew in the OPF, and I, there were probably five or six people in there. And we went, we went around and talked to all of them, and it was like bar none. It was just so cool to see... And I think it's the general sense of KSE workers, um, you know, when you meet them, is that there is this just overwhelming sense of pride and, you know, thankfulness for having the opportunity to work, to have worked on this program. And, like, down to the day that they were walking out the door, they were thankful to have had that opportunity and to have been part of it. Because I think, you know, it really was a kind of heart and soul job versus, you know, a nine-to-fiver kind of thing. Great yeah. words. Thank you, Nicole. You're welcome. Okay, I might as well answer the question I know people have been wondering about. Since you know we're getting close to the end of my interviews from Discovery's departure at Kennedy Space Center, why didn't I ask more questions about particularly the STS-133 crew? Well, what was the 133rd mission of the space shuttle program like? And th Discovery's 39th and final flight. What was the what was the experience? Did you think about the history? Well, sorry, I just really didn't think of those questions when I was around the STS-133 crew. I thought of questions that related to their careers. I thought of questions that uh, that were 
you know, just things that interested me that I knew about each of them. And I hope you enjoy that. I'm sure there's plenty of places you can go to get that historical perspective type blah, blah, blah. But uh, that just wasn't first on my mind, and time was of the essence. So I do have, and I think this was a recording that I made over somebody else's shoulder where one of the other media folks asked the question about Discovery's final flight. And uh, I do have a little extra from the pilot of STS-133, Eric Bowe. One of the bigger things that I remember is on our launch day when we would get ready to launch, we actually had a delay with the range. There was a complication that was happening. And we, our launch window was only a, a three minute, three or four minutes long, and, and so we were actually delaying, waiting for that. And we weren't sure we were going to launch on, the, on, our, on the final mission on time. And so it was really uh, exciting when we had a, only a couple seconds left to, to get the uh, ship into space and get us on our way. So that was probably one of the, 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 my best memories of Discovery, getting into orbit. Well, that's just about it for me for this week. I want to reminisce for just a second and tell you how excited I was back earlier this year, probably in March, I'm guessing, where I made a phone call down to the uh, news center, to the press site at Cape Kennedy, and I talked to one of the folks that I've gotten to know there the past couple years that I've been going down there, and I asked the question, I said, uh, I know you've got Discovery about to leave Kennedy Space Center for the Smithsonian. Can you give me some idea of what kind of events are coming up? Is is there going to be a lot going on? Is it mainly going to be just the the, the takeoff and flight out of the, the aircraft and, and the shuttle? Uh, what's it going to be like? And Tracy Young, who's the the point of contact for this event, Tracy said, well, we're looking to do this and this and this, and the shuttle carrier aircraft is going to be there. We're hoping to arrange a tour and maybe get to talk to the crew. We're working on that. And uh, she said, and also the, the crew from, from Discovery's final flight. And I said, the whole crew? And she said, that's what we're working on. And so this is just a, a brief thank you to NASA to the folks at the Public Affairs Office at Kennedy Space Center, Johnson Space Center, certainly the contractors, United Launch Alliance, the employees that I got to talk to on the ramp, one of my first sets of interviews. You know, a lot of people pulled together to make this, a, in my mind, a historic moment for this departure of Discovery from Kennedy Space Center. So that's it for now. We've got a few other little tidbits that we'll uh, have for you coming up soon. I want to thank you for bearing with me. I hope you've enjoyed this. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Mark, once again, thank you so much for going out and getting those amazing clips. And obviously, as you know, we're not the only ones who have been appreciative and benefiting from your amazing clips. But, of course, the listeners. And I know that you've heard a couple of compliments from some of the listeners. But one of our listeners, another Mark, actually, in fact ended up sending in his thoughts on your interviews, along with a couple of questions for us to ponder. So let's go ahead and play his MP3 recording that he emailed us. Hi, Talking Space. My name is Mark Zog, also known as Zarquil on Twitter. I'm a huge fan of the interviews that Mark has been bringing us from KSC over the past few weeks. I was born in 1968 and don't have much recollection of the Apollo missions, but Dad and I watched the shuttle development the first launch of Columbia, and subsequent missions from the shuttle program. My interest was really reinvigorated as my children found their own love of space. Together we watched the launch and landing of STS-125 
and our love of the shuttles have been sealed forever. I've heard the assertion that we no longer have the expertise to put together a Saturn V and return to the moon as we did with Apollo. After hearing Kevin Templin interviewed by Mark on last week's Talking Space, I was surprised with the care that was taken to decommission the shuttles. I have to think a similar effort occurred between the transition from the Apollo missions to the space shuttle program. Was there an actual loss of knowledge and expertise between these programs, or was it just a myth? As a follow-up question, do you think there's a particular historical significance to the Mark Discovery interviews? Are we doing enough today to capture all the wonderful stories from the caretakers of these marvelous machines? Thanks so much. From Calgary, Alberta, Canada, I'm Mark Zog. So let's answer these two questions. What do you guys think? First off, do you think that there was a loss of knowledge between programs? Well, first I want to thank uh, Mr. Zog for giving us the question. Uh, do I think that there was a loss of information? Not so much loss of information. I mean, the Saturn V has been pretty much blueprinted, and, and everybody knows, you know, put slot A into groove B when they take a look at the, the current plans or the, the plans for the Saturn. But I think it's more of um, so much a loss of know-how, um, although now that these individuals are long retired and some of them have, have are no longer with us, um, I, I think it's more of trying to get the actual parts made and prefabricated and so on. So, you know, the Saturn was a creature of the 1960s, and as such, technology has changed, parts have changed, vendors have come and gone. It was the same problem we were having with Shuttle, by the way, too. Um, Wayne Hale, in a blog post uh, on uh, on the NASA website when he was still with them, made a good cause for that too so you know suppliers are gone things like that so to to go ahead and rebuild the saturn could we do it we probably could but but why would you want to go ahead and go back to 1960s technology when you may have had some advances already currently and i think that's what what the space launch system is and with with some respect i think it's taking some of that Saturn know-how. I mean, the J2X engine that was once, I believe, on the third stage of the Saturn, but also uh, flew the Saturn 1B, that is going to essentially be the heart of, of, the, uh, of the space launch system. So in some sense, Saturn's legacy still lives on with the J2X, uh, which, is, which is, again, a modified J2 engine uh, from, from the Saturn. But to um, to say that there was a loss of expertise or a loss of know-how, there probably was as people kind of disappeared. I don't know if that answers the question or not. Could we remanufacture the Saturn? Probably. Uh, was there a loss of know-how? Yeah, because we don't because that workforce is aging and in some cases no longer with us. But my question is, why would you want to do that when we're, we're kind of sort of trying to sort of get that infrastructure back in the form of the of the space launch system? Mark, what do you think? In in terms of losing uh, experience and and the experts in different fields, I, I look at my own experience. In 1978, I went to my first FAA technical training class. It was a system called FDEP, Flight Data Entry and Printout. 
it was a printer and the electronics interface to data lines that printed little strips of paper that had flat information. It used a highly modified IBM Selectric typewriter with a type ball that was fascinating to watch because this was all mechanical. There was a motor that turned shafts, that had cams, that had cam followers, that had uh, trips that were magnetically uh, released to allow things to happen. And one shaft went this way, and the apparent motion of another end of the shaft was a different way. And you could adjust this system exactly on tolerance, and it wouldn't work. And that was in the instruction manual. And that's pretty much the basics of what I remember about that printer. So in my own case, did the FAA lose experience in, in this one highly distributed throughout the agency at major airports printer system? Yeah, we did. Is it significant today? No. Did the people that were part of, of the maintenance and even earlier the design of, and modification of what essentially was a typewriter into something that was a core part of the FAA in the 60s and 70s, um, did they lose? What, what benefit did they lose? Well, they lost the benefit of people being able to work on it. But what they gained is the experience of those people developing those systems, doing those things, going on to bigger and better things. And so you've got building blocks of experience from, from tough jobs that were accomplished and, and accomplished well. And I think we can look at, at NASA both in the 60s and 70s, and it's hard for me to give any good examples there like I am from my own work experience. But um, has NASA lost? Yes. Will NASA lose from what's happened with the shuttle program? Yes. Will will NASA benefit from the entire 30 plus years of, of experience with designing, manufacturing, maintaining the shuttle? Oh, yes. And will it be NASA that benefits? To some extent, yes. To a large extent, no. Because how many astronauts have we heard how many managers have we heard? How many technicians have we heard of that had to move on and had to leave their their field of, of, of rocket science? And so there's a benefit, but it's a benefit that shows up from that point on in many other places. And I think that's a perfect lead-in to the second question about the stories that you know these caretakers and these experts that you're sharing with us all. So do you believe that your segments are significant and that we're doing enough to capture these stories? Thinking about whether I'm doing enough, you know, I'd have to say no because I wish I could be getting so much more. Um, will this suffice as being a, a, a record of, of the program and the people? I think it's really just going to be like a thumbnail of it, and and it'll be a thumbnail that I think will will give people the general impression that, gee, anybody that was part of this must have been some dynamite A number one people, like the voices that you heard on my recordings and interviews there. So I, I think it's a start. Um, how much more we can add to it will depend on in my case, the amount of time that I can get down there and the availability of people like this to talk to. I think one of the people that uh, just really lit up my imagination was Kevin Templin from Johnson Space Center. And here he's talking about the transition retirement 
of the shuttle program and the assets and the software and the things that he and I talked about. But then he said, I was on Columbia the first time they brought up the the new displays in the cockpit for the first time. And, and I believe he said words to the effect that this is what a spaceship is supposed to look like. You know, and that just fired my imagination with, wow, okay, this is somebody that's been there. And yet, obviously, from talking with him, you can tell he's done a lot of different things. And uh, I, I think anybody anywhere, here's Johnson Space Center, one of the folks from there. Um, anybody from, from any center with uh, NASA has probably got some stories to tell. I think that what you're doing, even though it may not be enough to capture all the stories, is an amazing start. And these are archives that will last in the history books of the stories of the amazing people that spent a majority, if not all, of their careers working on these vehicles. So thank you, Mark. And thank you as well to Mark, who sent in the question for sending that in as well. I should add that he included in with the email that he was thanking you, Mark, of course, for all that you did. And just along those lines, he said, I have a mental image of my kids going through my Talking Space archives for research on their dissertation on early space flight, quote-unquote, got the giggles, and thought to myself there was a genuine historic value in these interviews. So just know, Mark, that people do think that there is some big significance in this. That's quite a compliment. Thank you. All right. So that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. On July 4th, which is a Wednesday, our usual release date, we will be releasing a very, very special episode that you will not want to miss, commemorating one year since the end of the space shuttle program with the final launch of Atlantis, which occurred July 8th, 2011. We'll be bringing you some of our favorite clips from the event, as well as some unaired clips and interviews that have never been released before with astronauts and members of the program who have been there for a while. So you're going to want to stay tuned next week for that very, very special episode. We're all looking forward to that. But in the meantime, we'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and a bit of a shout-out to a friend of mine and a friend of the program here, Liz Howell. She just defended her master's thesis at the University of North Dakota. Uh, she's uh, undergoing the uh, their space studies program over there, and Liz, way to go. And thank you so much for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Glad to be here as always, and looking forward to next week and the week after that and the week after that. So thanks, everybody. I'm with you, and thank you as well for listening and joining us. And, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.